Welcome to Impact AI, the podcast for startups who want to create a better future through the use of machine learning. I'm your host, Heather Couture. Today, I'm joined by guest Matt Alderdice, head of data science at Sonroy Analytics, to talk about data analysis for biomedical applications. Matt, welcome to the show. Hi, Heather. Thanks very much. Looking forward to today's podcast. Matt, could you share a bit about your background and how that led you to Sonroy Analytics? Sure. Um, I have an undergrad in pharmacology, master's in toxicology, but the the journey to Sonray really starts with my PhD. Uh, so I'm I'm from a city in the north of Ireland called Belfast. And my PhD is in molecular pathology, and I attended that in about 2016 at Queen's University. So I was based at the Northern Ireland Molecular Pathology Labs. Uh, where I was researching multiomic techniques for assessing tumor regression in colorectal cancer. So I, I know a lot of the stuff I do is around pathology, but it's, it, it was multiomic in nature. So it was next generation sequencing machines, microscopes, medical imaging. And I started in the lab. And uh, by the end of the PhD, I was a data scientist or a, a bioinformatician. And really, I became one by necessity due to the sheer volume of data that we were generating and the need to use advanced analytics to uh, to answer some of the complex questions that would otherwise be intractable with, without techniques like machine learning. Uh, and the, the data the data that we were analyzing, as I said, was pathology images for you know uh, for some of the parts and it was H and E images. Uh, this is a, a type of stain that's used to, to visualize tissues down the microscope. Uh, and I was trained on uh, manual light microscopes um, by uh, a well-known professor, Man Professor Manuel Salto Tevez, uh, a mentor ever since. And at the, at the time, I had no idea really how lucky I was to get exposure to the generation of digital pathology tools. They were actually being generated at Queen's University. Um, tools like QPath, which I'm, I'm sure you've you've heard of, uh, developed by uh, one of the legends in the field, Pete Bankhead, and really unbeknownst to me at the time, you know, the, the digital pathology was was happening. Uh, it was undergoing a bit. Pathology itself was going under a bit of a digital revolution, and I, I can kind of remember one time where I was just in counting cells under the microscope with a, a manual handheld clicker. And uh, I was doing this nearly every day for eight weeks, thinking there's got to be a better way to do this. And uh, that was about eight years ago now. And uh, today that task is automated. Uh, uh, today it's an ML-based automation. And that's what we do at Sonray Analytics. We use machine learning to automate tasks, just like I've described, uh, to improve reproducibility, improve efficiency, but really around uh, the precision medicine space, uh, molecular pathology programs, and precision medicine in, in general. So, how do these applications that you just mentioned at Sonray? How does that translate into improved healthcare in the future? Um, well, it's in, improved healthcare. There's a number of different facets to it. So, uh, diagnostic tests can have quite a long turnaround time. So, machine learning can help improve those turnaround times. So, there's some tests that might take 14 days. We can get those down to minutes and hours. It can reduce costs for the health services, and uh, you know we can get the diagnosis to the patient quicker. Those are all very important things. So, on the the different things that Sonray does, what role does machine learning play? What different things um, does it do in the in the applications you develop? 
Um, I think that machine learning is, is essential to Sonray. Um, Sonray is the Irish word for data, by the way. Just, it's worth saying that. So, you know, data underpins everything that we do, but we apply AI to, to data. But I can maybe give you two examples of, you know, how, you know, how we use machine learning in some of our products. Um, one example uh, is is nuclei counting. Um, have you ever tried to count all the cells on an h &E image? I have never uh, done it personally, no. <laughs> yeah, it's going to take a very, very long time, and you're probably going to come up with the, the wrong the wrong answer, the wrong number. Uh, so we're developing algorithms to, to do just that, um, count how many uh, nuclei or, or cells are on a on a slide, and that can tell you lots of different things, how many immune cells there, how much tumors there, and then, you know, by proxy, how much, much DNA is there. And that's that's one thing that just would take a very long time, and we can speed that up and reduce the error. But there's some things that we can do with machine learning that maybe pathologists or scientists can't actually do. So there's a there's a a, a test called uh, well there's a test for microsatellite instability. Every colorectal cancer patient in the UK gets a test for microsatellite instability. It's it's a a, a genotype where the patient has hypermutated DNA. Uh, it's an indication that they might have Lynch syndrome. And you have to get a PCR test uh, to, to tell whether you have this syndrome or whether you're MSI high. Uh, and some pathologists can look down the slide and give you a bit of a, an educated guess as to whether this patient might be MSI. They might have a bit of inflammation in the image. They might have a lot of mucin. They're sort of giveaways, but you cannot actually say with certainty that it is. We are developing using deep learning um, techniques, multiple instance learning to be more specific, where we can take the image, bypass the need to sequence DNA, uh, and actually tell whether the patient is, uh, is is MSI high or not. So there's there's two examples. There's there's others. As okay. well. Yeah, those are very important applications. So I want to talk a little bit more about machine learning within your company and how you operate on a day to day. So let's say a machine learning engineer joins your team and they have no prior experience with these complex pathology images. How do you train them on the domain-specific aspects? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think first off, it, it's the first thing that it, it takes time. Um, I've spent nearly 10 years looking down the microscope and, and every day is a learning day for me. Um, and there's no real substitute for gaining that sort of unconscious competence that comes with just time spent on the job. But there are ways that we can accelerate getting uh, new members of staff, those you know, people who have never seen pathology images, and getting up to the stage where they can start adding value. And that, that really starts first off by establishing multidisciplinary teams, having pathologists either as part of your company, part of your organization, part of your team, or ensuring that you have access to those experts and utilizing them effectively. Um, I've I've hired people from different backgrounds into my team, those with with pathology uh, ex experience, those with radiology and different sort of medical imaging, those with satellite imaging, which is it, it's interesting because it's quite a transferable you know tech stack that you use to work with pathology images and satellite images. Uh, and then I've also had people with no computer vision experience at all, and they all add value in their own way, and they solve problems, and they add, you know, they, they, that problem solving is really enhanced uh, by that multidisciplinary aspect. But to, to get back to the point, how can I get people up to speed with pathology? Uh, get them to do a lab tour. You know, we we work on the Queen's University campus currently at Sunrise, and 
Uh, we have access to the Precision Medicine Center, uh, and we can give it just, uh, it's very valuable uh, to machine learning engineers to go in and have a look at how the data is actually generated, have a look down a microscope, uh, have a look at the H&Es, understand how it's made, and then it gives you a really good idea of what you're looking at. Uh, and as, as I've just said, get them looking at the images because it's ultimately pattern recognition. It's still very complex and nuanced, but that, that's, that's really where it starts. Get them working with the data and uh, get them speaking with, with experts. So once they've gotten up to speed, at least to some degree with the domain specific aspects and they can talk to a pathologist and they've looked at a number of images, how do they stay in, involved with the domain side? Do they continue to interact with pathologists throughout a project or is it mostly at the beginning in order to get them up to speed? No, it's, it's throughout the project. We we work in an agile manner and we have uh, stakeholders and subject matter experts that will be part of that project throughout, whether it's a six-month project or a three-year project. We have regular check-ins. Um, pathologists have to do this as well when they're looking down microscope there's currency you have to keep retraining and it's the same for machine learning engineers when they're looking at these images they have to keep current keep asking questions and keep challenging what they're looking at and you know, working with pathologists is, is part of that process so they, they are always there so let's say that this machine learning engineer who just joined your team is is now up to speed to some degree at least on pathology and they're tasked with a new project. How do they plan out the machine learning approach? Good question. It, it, it starts off by really trying to break the problem itself down into its most simple components. Uh, we, we reached, we, a good example is we were recently posed with a very complex uh, pathology problem of being able to try and predict the DNA that you would extract from an h and &E image uh, from the downstream extraction process in the lab. And when we actually really thought about it, we were able to break it down into three much more simple concepts and use much more simple tools out of the box, like UNET and uh, linear regression. Um, but you know, we, we really had to think about, you know, is this project for research use only? Is it software as a medical device? What's the intended use of the algorithm? And there's then lots of other factors, which I could speak for quite a bit on in terms of well, you know, the ML approach that we use, is it going to be a, uh, a data-hungry approach? Do we have access to enough data? Uh, can we afford it? Can we access it from an ethical point of view? Is it PII? Um, are we qualified to actually annotate and collect it ourselves? Do we have to outsource that? There's lots of things that we have to ask ourselves, not just from the, the algorithm approach, but from the actual whole ML study and uh, you know, it's it's objectives or it's intended use we from an algorithm point of view we do a literature review uh, uh, and that's you know to, to avoid reinventing the wheel really um, and i've never regretted spending more time researching i have regretted committing to an implementation too soon and then uh, finally we, we ask ourselves questions like does the project actually need to have this you know bleeding edge technique applied to it or can it be solved with with something you know relatively simple and the literature literature review quite often sheds light on that so those of us who have been through a phd program are probably quite familiar with the literature review and what's involved 
for others who this concept might be newer to, could you go into a little bit more detail on what's involved in a literature review and what kind of insights it can dig up? Sure. Well, yeah, it, it, it does not involve reading 300 papers from back to back or front to back. That, that's not what it's about. It's about uh, uh, identifying keywords, uh, things that you want to search for, pro the, trying to frame the problem in a way which you can search for uh, publications associated with that challenge or that problem and potential solutions to that problem. And, uh, and then it's about collecting them in a way which you can easily sift through and start to filter through the patient or the uh, the papers uh, that are worth reading, uh, identifying the ones which have been fruitful and have come up with you know uh, solutions which you feel are the right ones to approach. And then you write up. Uh, we we use Confluence for how we write this up. We write this up uh, uh, in a way which we can share with the rest of the team, uh, get feedback. Uh, and then start to work through which ones we actually want to choose for for the implementation. Uh, it does take a while, uh, but for the most part, I really enjoy it, uh, and it's uh, it's a very very useful process because, as I said before, uh, you can end up coming up with a very complex solution uh, for something that's already been done. So, how long would the literature review typically take? Is there a standard, or does it really depend on the type of project? It it, it depends on the type of project. Uh, my PhD, we start off with a three-month one, but uh, I do encourage it to be something which you're you're always doing as well. Um, you should be constantly trying to keep abreast with the latest techniques, looking on uh, preprints. Um, I actually find your content, for example, very useful on LinkedIn. It doesn't have to necessarily just be um, searching uh, on online for papers. Uh, there's very useful blogs, people who are summarizing content for you uh, in bite-sized and accessible chunks. How do you think a project would progress if instead the machine learning engineer just implemented the best model they could think of without investing the time in a literature search? Uh, I think they'll end up with a, a complex solution that's um, it sort of it could be potentially over engineered and and, and overthought uh, and it doesn't it's not as simple and accessible as it could be yeah there's, there's de definitely many ways things can go wrong especially if you don't have the information to base your decisions on but both on what types of models will work what types of models have been used on your type of data before all, all those sure. types of things so i'm fully on board with your process here i just you know, wanted to dig out more information on on how you actually execute it so that, that's great to hear the other big topic i wanted to touch on today is validation how do you validate your machine learning models well we we develop algorithms as part of software as a medical device at sunrise we work under a quality management system uh, we're very lucky to have clinical diagnostic specialists, uh, quality and regulatory specialists in-house who help steer us to what evidence we need to generate in order to validate our algorithms for their intended use. I've mentioned intended use, our intended purpose. That's something that's really fundamental to, you know, you're developing a biomarker or a digital assay, which is a term I quite often use for pathology algorithms. Uh, and what that really entails is a couple of key things. Um, uh, ethical and robust study design, first and foremost, have you captured ethnic diversity 
in your validation data set? Um, have you oversampled, for example? Um, and then in terms of uh, the ethnic, in terms of the actual samples which you've collected, have you collected enough of them? And that comes in, uh, that brings into play statistical partnering. And we use a biostatistician. Uh, it's a great investment to use biostatisticians. And in my eyes, it's, it's essential. I'm thinking of regulatory submission for really understanding have I collected enough samples to really prove with my algorithm is doing what I, I say it is. And then there's two other concepts, analytical validation, which we, we looked at, and clinical validation. So analytical validation, I'll speak to first, and that's what factors are likely to interfere with an algorithm. Um, uh, different staining protocols, so different uh, different labs can use different, uh, slightly different methods for producing an AH&E stain. Uh, different scanners uh, can have very different, uh, not very different, slightly different uh, uh, ways of pr projecting the data uh, into a file, uh, and then different operators as well of those different lab instruments. Uh, and then even how an annotation uh, is is done, a digital annotation, which captures the pixel data, which will then go in. What How sensitive is your algorithm to the annotation which you're providing? That, that's what, those are some of the things which we sort of put into the analytical validation uh, process. And then there's the clinical validation, which is on a, a held out data set or one that's prospectively collected. Uh, and we will test its, the utility of the algorithm in the same environment as that which would be in the clinic and make sure that its performance uh, is uh, it, it meets the standards uh, that we've set out. And that's also something we work on with biostatistician, making sure that we're looking at the right evaluation metrics, uh, not just sensitivity and specificity. Are we looking at negative predictive value or positive predictive value? And how, which one actually is most important from a risk to the patient point of view? Uh, and what should we be uh, focusing on in terms of when we're iterating through model development? And then also in terms of what we should be aiming to achieve as part of that uh, clinical validation study. So how do you figure out which metrics are, are most relevant from a medical perspective? Uh, sitting down with uh, pathologists, oncologists, and then also working with nurses and patients themselves. So we, we have, a, I, I don't know how common this is, but we, we have patient outreach uh, initiatives as part of a lot of our programs where we actually present uh, the, the concepts that we're working on, the objectives of our project, and we involve patients or survivors of the disease that we're, we're working to uh, you know, create solutions for uh, uh, into the process. And you know, each one of those different facets, whether it's the biostatistician, the nurse, the patient, the survivor, uh, they all contribute to how we think about what metrics are most important uh, to be to be focusing on. So, for example, in, in your conversation with, with nurses or you know, other groups like that, what kinds of insights have they given you that you might not have gotten if you, if you hadn't taken that extra step? Well, first and foremost, you have to remember that the data that you're working on uh, isn't just data. This is data that's coming from patients and we're working to solve a solution which is for a patient. And I think that that can be when you're sitting behind a computer or you're looking down a microscope, it can be easy to forget those things. And you might just start focusing on metrics which you may may feel good in terms of accuracy. I want to get 99% accuracy when ultimately that's not what's going to make the difference uh, to the patient. 
uh, and I think it really brings it home. It, it just makes you think a little bit more hard when you when you hear the stories uh, of the survivors in terms of what uh, uh, what they've been through and how this algorithm might impact people like them. That's that's really important to hear. I like the the extra effort, and it, it's not actually extra effort. It, it's it's essential. Um, yeah, I yeah, think for uh, medical yeah. applications, even though it seems like an extra step, it's essential. So, is there any advice you could offer to other leaders of AI AI powered startups? Yeah, sure. Um, I've said this before. I'll just reiterate it. Establish multidisciplinary teams if you want to be successful. Um, if you're working in the medical device territory, invest in regulatory and QMS and clinical experts sooner rather than later. And also work with people who are you know, uh, progressive enough to work in an agile manner. And if you're working with QMS, you know, digital QMS or eQMSs, uh, that's going to really help. Uh, and then I think this applies to people outside of uh, sort of healthcare and, and med tech, but focus on the problem you're trying to solve and don't get caught up in the AI snake oil. AI algorithms alone don't make a successful startup nor a business strategy. It's, it's really about the problem that you're trying to solve and AI should just happen to be the, the way that you solve that. Uh, in terms of the AI problem, you're, you're the AI solution that you're developing, make sure you understand the barriers to adoption. There's always barriers. Uh, make sure they're not insurmountable with the time and resources to hand. And then finally, uh, uh, nurture the talent you have uh, in your AI part startup. Uh, it, it, it takes a lot of time to train these people up. I think it'd be very expensive to replace people in this niche space. It is. Hiring in this space is definitely a big challenge I see across the board. How do you think machine learning will impact pathology in the next three to five years? Well, I think that we're going to start to see machine learning being adopted within pathology, you know, more routinely and being part of practice in the next three to five years. Um, if, if we could, I can think of a couple of different areas. Uh, in terms of algorithm development in pathology, uh, I think that because data collection is still such a pain, I mean, annotating is, is tough. I think semi-supervised data collection is really going to revolutionize and accelerate how we do algorithm development. What I mean is train algorithms to help collect the data in order to create better algorithms. So that, that's, that's one thing I'm looking forward to seeing from my perspective in pathology. And then in terms of how it's going to impact uh, biomarkers and um, it, uh, healthcare disease detection is by stuff like companion diagnostics. So uh, being able to pair up a uh, the detection of a particular phenotype or a particular sort of histology, which has implications for response to a drug. Uh, I think that's one thing which we're going to see a lot of, especially as a lot of the big pathology companies uh, are pairing off with or partnering up with pharma companies. So they're developing the drugs. The digital pathology companies are developing the companion diagnostics to predict the drug response. Uh, so that, that there's, I think that that's going to become a big thing. Uh, I think that automated disease detection. I mean, one of the I think it was Page, uh, Page AI's uh, Page Prostate was the product that was one of the first FDA approved pathology products. I think we're going to see a lot more of that, uh, and then I think uh, we're going to start to see how that becomes incorporated into healthcare systems. So I can't I can't say I'm. I know a lot about, for example, the American healthcare system, but you know, the processes, the infrastructure is going to really start, I think, to facilitate digital and computational pathology. 
Uh, and an area that I'm not so sure about, but I think is going to be important, is how AI is built into pathology education and specialization uh, as well. And then finally, um, it's not just clinical tools in pathology that I think are important. I think that there's analytical tools which AI can really help out with. It, it, it's like quantifying quality, and if I can try and explain that a little better, data quality is an issue in pathology. And I think that we can use AI to really help understand what the limitations of the, you know, what are the thresholds for data quality? How many folds in the tissue can you uh, really deal with before AI stops working? Uh, how do how well can AI algorithms generalize? And we can use analytical tools powered by AI to start uh, determining things like that. So. I named a whole load of things there. I think that AI and machine learning is going to really impact pathology in the next three to five years. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to being part of that. Those are all great advancements. I, I hope many of them come come to pass in the, in the not too distant future. Matt, this has been great. It was especially interesting to learn about Sunrise extensive efforts to bring the pathology domain expertise and combining it with machine learning and the important steps you take to validate your models. Where can people find out more about you online? Uh, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, send me an invite, happy to connect and, and talk more. Great. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much, Heather. Really enjoyed it. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Heather Couture, and I hope you join me again next time for Impact AI.